Daniel 3, verses 19 to 25. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And therefore he spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain men who were of valor, who were in his army, to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments, and they were cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the fire exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True king, Look, he answered, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. In order for this chapter to make sense, I need you to turn back to chapter 2, and I'm going to put something on the screen of um, the image that King Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. He saw this image that had a head of gold, a chest of silver, a belly of brass, legs of iron, and um, the feet and the toes, um, partly of iron, partly of clay. None of the wise men in Egypt could interpret the dream, so the edict was given. What worth are you guys to me? I want the whole lot of you killed. And they said, just tell us what the dream is, and we'll tell you the interpretation. And he says, no, you guys are just um, trying to gain some time so you can make up something. That's not going to work. So you tell me the dream or your history. That's the end of it. Well, that would have included Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And when Daniel got word that they're actually looking for him, he goes to the king and he says, will you just give us some time so that we can inquire of our God that he might give you the interpretation of your dream? And so it was granted, and Daniel had a prayer meeting with his three friends, and the dream was revealed to Daniel and its interpretation. He asks for an audience with the king. He gives these guys, uh, these so-called wise men, a little dig in chapter 2 by saying, weren't these other guys, you know, the astrologers, the soothsayers, the magicians, weren't, weren't they able to come up with the interpretation? And that was a dig, a little sarcasm. And he says, I want you to know that I'm no different than they are, but there's a God in heaven who reveals dreams, and he can interpret them too. And I'm here to tell you, he is the one that revealed the dream to me. So as he begins to describe what he saw, he ex- this is what he explained to King Nebuchadnezzar, and he was spot on. He described the image, head of gold, 
chest of silver, belly of brass, uh, legs of iron, and he went right down the list. And then he began to interpret the dream. And by this time, old Nebuchadnezzar's were sitting right on the edge of his throne because this is, a, this is exactly what he saw. And now he's get, getting the revelation of what he wants to know what it means. And um, I imagine any world dictator of his stature is probably wondering what's around the bend, you know. What's up next? You know, I have it all. It was, uh, the Babylon was incredible. And they could give a Bible study just an hour of just uh, the magnitude of, of Babylon. 300-foot walls, 450-foot towers. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world were the hanging gardens of Babylon. They had actually no fear of any outside um, power. And we'll get to get when we get to chapter 5. But nevertheless, he wanted to know, and what he found out, that his empire of gold was going to be replaced with one that would be inferior to his, but nonetheless, it would be replaced. Well, at the time, he's just overwhelmed. And uh, while he's watching all of this, we're told that a stone, not cut with hands, came out of nowhere came hurling at the image, hit the image in the feet, and it all crumbled, all the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, and it became like chaff, and the wind blew it away, and the stone became a great mountain and filled everything. And in contrast to these kingdoms here, the kingdom that would be established, pick it up in verse 44 of chapter 2, And in the days of these kings, a yet coming kingdom that's being formed in um, Europe right now. In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It will break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And it will stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw the stone, the solid rock, cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and gold. The great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Now, we use the expression, having your mind blown away. Well, <laughs> his mind was blown away. Because he was shown things not only that pertained to then and now, and what was happening next, but all the way yet into the future past our time. So as we get into chapter 3, there's been a change of heart. He now has had time to allow this dream and interpretation to settle in, and it's sort of like, what do you mean somebody's going to take my place? I'm Nebuchadnezzar. I'm the greatest man on this planet, and nobody's going to take my kingdom away from me. And so we find in defiance to what God clearly gave through Daniel in, uh, let's look at the first seven verses of chapter 3. What he does is Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubics and its width was 6 cubics. Now, right from the beginning, I I want you to start thinking in terms as we get into our, our message this morning. I'd sort of like to look at it from three different Vantage points or per- perspectives. 
Number one, if you're taking notes, no compromise when it comes to God's word over fill-in-the-blank, any worldly thing. God's word is preeminent, and it cannot be broken. Good place for an amen, right? All right, that's point number one. Point number two is going to be the importance of trials. I've entitled this this morning, In the Fire. And then the third one, how the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation dovetail together. I have a saying that I've been saying for years, for every New Testament teaching, we have an Old Testament picture. And you should get your first clues and hints with this first verse of Daniel 3, because the the image that is built is 60 cubics by 6. So you have 6, 6, hint, hint. Okay? We'll get there later when we get to point 3. The image was 60 cubics. Now, a cubic is about 18 inches. They usually measured it from here to here as a cubic. And that would make this statue what we today would call 90 feet tall. And six cubics wide, I don't know, eight or nine feet. Now, just think about that for a second. We're talking about an image 90 feet tall, eight or nine feet wide, made out of solid gold. And it was set in the plains of Duran, uh, sort of like the flatlands or the, maybe the, the prairie lands. Although Babylon itself was uh, this huge city with these huge towers and walls and had the Euphrates running right through the middle of it, here what um, Nebuchadnezzar is going to do, because in defiance, to the dream in uh, chapter 2. This one is all of gold. He set it up in the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. And then in verse 2, And the king Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, these are just um, heads of state, uh, general public. We're talking from around the world. The world, what, uh, the world, the word went out to the world that they should gather together. So, that's the traps and the administrators, the governors, counselors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all of the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And there stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and language, that at the time that you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, the symphony, with all kinds of music, Then you will fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So here here was the decree. There was going to be obedience and alliance to Nebuchadnezzar and nobody else. And um, anybody who does not fall down, when the decree is given and the music begins to play, verse... Six, anybody who's not 
does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. So at that time, when the people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and symphony with all kinds of music, that all the peoples, nations, languages fell down and worshipped the golden image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, this had to be quite a gathering. And all of a sudden you have this decree being given of the statue of gold, and you have everybody falling down and worshiping, except, of course, now I'm going to put up the golden image of what it would have looked like with three Jewish men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They would not and could not bow down. And they stuck out like a sore thumb. I mean, here's, everybody's down, but here's these three Jews and they're standing up, and um, they're actually refusing to bow down to the image. So let's read verses um, um, 8 through 18 at this time, and we'll explain why they wouldn't. Verse 8, Therefore, at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews, And they spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the harp, the flute, the lyre, the psaltery, and the symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now Daniel's not here, and it's part, there's a reason for it, but for the moment, he's not mentioned, and there's a reason for that. And they have not paid due regard to you. They don't serve your God of, or worship the golden image which you have set up. And when Nebuchadnezzar heard this, he had a temper tantrum, rage and fury. And he gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought them before the king. And the king's going to give him a second, second shot at this. And he says, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you, you do not serve my gods and, and worship the golden image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. I have an explanation point behind there. Good. In other words, I'm giving you guys a second chance. Maybe you misunderstood something or whatever. But if you do not worship, you will be cast immediately into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. And then this, and who is the God who will deliver you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, then our God, whom we serve, he is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. Clear enough. 
and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image which you have set up. Wow. And that's all you can say. Our God is more, more than able to do it. But I want you to know that even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down. I'm going to have you turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 is when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. And the second of these commandments is you shall not make unto you any graven image and you shall, um, you shall not make yourself any carved image or likeness of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is in the waters under the earth and you shall not bow down to them nor serve them for I am the Lord your God and I'm jealous. And the reason, here's our point one, no compromise. No compromise when it comes to the book that you're holding in your lap. It was no compromise for these three guys. They knew the word, and they were in this complete denial of what their life was all about. It was about the word. The word is clear on this issue. It's not a gray issue. It's black, and it's white, and they can't do it. The Lord was more than able to deliver them, and yet the Lord chose not to. Now, I'm going to put up on the screen the Ten Commandments, one from the Roman Catholic Bible and one from what uh, the Bible that you have in your laps this morning. And I want you to notice that they're highlighted in red, and I want you to notice that in the Roman Catholic Bible, they have removed the second commandment. Um, theirs is, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And so that they can get ten, they add to the last couple where it talks about coveting things. You shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. Well, it gets more specific. You shall not bear false witness, and it gets into describing it more clearly. Also, you've heard people say, well, I can't kill. The Bible says I can't kill. No, the Bible does not say that. It's not the right word there. It is in, in the Roman Catholic Bible, but the word is actually murder. We honor, um, we honored um, Jim Rush with a, with a gun salute just, just last Monday. Cause, and they, they covered his, uh, his co- coffin up here, an American flag, and he was in war. And um, there's guys every day that are defending our country, and in order to do so, they have to take the enemy's life. Everybody on the same page with me? Killing is one thing. Um, this crazy guy that ran over all the people in Times Square, he's a killer. And, um, and he killed people. That's murder. Thou shalt not murder. And um, I'm just going to leave that for what it is. But my, my point is, these three men knew the word, and when it got down to bowing down to a, a golden idol, nope, can't do it. And um, if Daniel was there, no, he would have not done it either. 
I want to give you an example of what I'm talking about here when it gets into obeying the laws of the land if it contradicts what the Bible has to say. In Acts chapter 5, here's Peter. Um, and when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest that they asked them because they had been told, look, you can't talk about Jesus anymore. And uh, verse 28 says, didn't, didn't not we strictly command you that you cannot teach in the name of Jesus? And look, you filled Jerusalem with this doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than man. Now, I believe we should pray for our president, whether we like him or not. Good place for an amen, because the Bible tells us to. The Bible tells us we should pay our taxes, as much as I don't like to say that from the pulpit. <laughs> Jesus was a handy guy to have around when tax day came around. You know, Peter didn't have any money. He says, Peter, go fishing. First fish you're going to catch, he's going to, have, he's going to have all the money you need to pay your taxes. Take it and go pay. Oh, Lord, I'd love to go fishing on tax day when, with you around. <laughs> but we have a precedent here. And we have choices. And what's happening in the church today is the society is conforming the church when the church should be conforming to society because we're compromising. And you simply cannot compromise. We're under God's judgment just if it's under the issue of abortion alone. And um, that's murder. And yet um, we, we simply are, get to areas like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego Point number one, you cannot compromise God's word. Amen? Revelation, the last couple of verses in the Bible, probably apply primarily to the book of Revelation. But the Lord says, don't add anything to and don't take anything away. And if you do, the plagues that are written in this book will be put upon you. The Bible says that God honors his word above himself. Daniel's friends are protected from the fire. Let's go on to verse, let's go back to the book of Daniel. They said, the king said, I'll give you another chance. And they said, that won't make any difference. We're not going to do it anyway. So picking it up um, in verse 19, our text this morning. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he spoke concerning that the fire should be seven times more hotter than usual. Well, why tell us that? I want you to hold that in the back of your mind until we get to the end of the study. But it's heated up seven times hotter than before. Then I want you to notice that they were bound by the trousers, by the head. They were bound from head to toe. And the men that cast him into the fire, it was so hot, they died. And yet, when Nebuchadnezzar goes and observes, looks in, he doesn't see three men, he sees four. And what we find is that they're not bound anymore. The only thing that the fire touched was that which was binding them. The Importance of Fiery Trials. I want you to turn with me to the book of 1 Peter in the New Testament, 
I want to talk about trials this morning, fiery trials. First Peter 4, look at verse 12. It says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory is revealed, you also may be glad with exceeding joy. Rejoice in the midst of fiery trials. Yesterday in men's prayer, we happened happened to be in in the book of Acts. I think we cracked out maybe three or four chapters, if I remember right. But a lot of us guys kept going back to Acts 16.25, and I'm going to read it, but I want to make my way up to it. Because Paul and Silas are going to be persecuted for being obedient to what the Lord instructed them to do, and that was to preach the gospel. I'm picking it up in Acts 16, verse 16. Now, it happened as they went to pray that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination, in other words, a familiar spirit, was brought to, which brought much uh, money to her masters for profit. So the Bible tells us in the Old Testament that there are demonic spirits. There are different levels. The spirit of divination is also called a familiar spirit. It has the ability to foretell the future because it lives out of the, the time continuum that we're confined to. And there are, you know, there's the 1-800 psychic hotlines, and we know they're phony balonies, right? I don't think they say they're phony balonies on TV, but there's, there, there's the charlatans that are out there. Having said that, one-third of the Lord's ministry was casting demons out of people. Some were harder than others. Uh, the disciples, when they came down off the mount of the transfiguration, all the guys were trying to cast this demon out, and they couldn't do it. And they said, Lord, what's going on here? We, all the rest of them, no problemo. And he says, well, this one's different. What do you mean it's different? Well, this kind only comes out with prayer and fasting. Now, that's implying a hierarchy of authority and power and strength. And as um, in this case, this gal was following around, verse 17, this girl that was possessed was following Paul, and cried out and saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And she did this for many days, but Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. Now that's interesting to me. Because sometimes a demon will come out immediately, like the, the legion. They were cast out immediately. But this one, it came out within the hour. Explain that, Dwight. I cannot. (laughs) But when her masters saw, in other words, she was working for people, gaining money by telling them their fortune. But when her masters saw that the hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. 
And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And to receive or observe. And then the multitudes rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. And having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. So they're in the inner prison, stocks on. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, if I get the snot beat out of me, forgiveness Bible study this morning, and I get, I get locked away, or you do for you sharing the word with somebody, and not only that, but your back is like hamburger, I don't know if I'm singing songs at midnight or not. I'm singing things like, Lord, you told me to go into the ministry, and Lord, you called me to do this, and now look what's happening to me. You guys are beating me up, and, and they don't like me, and they don't want all that. What I want you to notice here, they were praying and singing. It goes on to say that they, they countered it. We read um, um, this last thing here, and the prisoners were listening to them. Some of you are in a fire trial this morning. If not, you will be someday. Good place for an amen, whether you like it or not. <laughs> you will be if you haven't been or you are now. How are you handling it? Do you know that people are watching? And do you know that people are listening? How is he going to handle this one? And what's he going to do? Singing and worshiping and praising, and they were listening. Oh, yeah. Who are these guys? That's what I'd say. Who are these guys? If you are still in First First Peter, go to chapter one now, and let's look at verses six and seven. Talks about being kept by the power of God, and our salvations to be revealed in the last time. So, you know, we're going to get raptured. We're going to get going home. And verse six it says, "In this we greatly rejoice. Praise the Lord. We're going to be out of here someday. Though now." For a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here, um, Peter is comparing trials to um, um, being refined. Now, when the guys were thrown into them, what was the only thing that was burned off except that which was binding them? The reason that the Lord puts you through trials is that there's a refining pro- process that he's going to take us through. And you're being tested to see if you'll continue on. Some gospel messages that are being presented today it's like the parable of uh, the sower and the seed. They believed for a while, but then they were tested. In time of testing, they, I didn't sign up for this. And, you know, you told me when I give my life to Jesus that he has a wonderful plan for my life. And look, look what's happening to me. And they, they went back. 
They, they left. Have you ever heard, um, secondly, um, they used to have this little book. It's called um, God's Promises. It's a, just a little book, and it had in it all of God's promises for you. You guys remember that one? You know what verse is not in there? <laughs> all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You can't find it in the book. Only the good stuff. I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'll turn everything out for good for your life. Um, he who lives and believes in me will never perish but have everlasting. Oh, we love those. They're great. This persecution stuff, I don't know about that. But the importance of studying all the Bible is that when you go through it, that you don't think you're doing something wrong. No, it's part of the process. God knows exactly where you're at in your walk with him. The problem is you don't. So what does he do? He tests you. He knows exactly how you're going to come through the test. And if it needs to be repeated and done again, he'll refine you. We, we call it the sanctification process. We're not there yet. Paul says, I have not yet been attained to what I've been purchased for. And he, that, that's another way of saying, you guys are never going to be perfect, neither am I, but you are going to be refined. And you're going to be a lot more mature and grounded with God in the difficult times and being, being able to handle it because you're, you will be refined. Third, fiery trials only refine us and burn off the things that hold us. He wants to set us free from those things that we talked about. That's the picture. The teachings in the New Testament, but the picture is the burning off of the things that bound those men. And we just got done with Jeremiah. I'm quoting Jeremiah 9, verse 7 right now. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and try them. For how shall I deal with the daughters of my people? The very reason for the 70 years in captivity was to refine them. They had gotten away from their first love and fallen into all this idolatry. Daniel 11, verse 35. And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, make them white until the time of the end because it is still for the appointed time. This is Daniel 11, verse 35. He's talking about a remnant, one-third, that God is going to refine during the great tribulation period. So it's a prophecy. I'll quote one more. Zechariah 13.9. I will bring one-third through the fire. He's talking about Jews now. I will refine them as silver is refined, and I will test them as gold is tested, and then they will call in my name. And I will answer them. I will say, this is my people, and each one will say, the Lord is my God. Remember when the Lord says to Israel, you're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And um, when they're being hid away in Petra over in Jordan, that's exactly what they do. That one third comes to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, either through the 144,000 witnesses or the two witnesses, Moses and Elijah, but they call on the Lord, and Zechariah says they're being refined during this seven-year period of time. Fourthly, and that is when you're in the fire, 
For me, it's when I'm allergies or sick. I feel so unspiritual, I can't tell you how unspiritual I feel. (laughs) I feel about as carnal as any human being can be. And yet, what is it? It's a feeling. It has nothing to do with my faith. It is nothing more than a feeling. Don't worry, I'm not going to break out into feelings. (laughs) You can be rest assured I won't go there. But the danger of feelings. Oh, but my heart tells me this. Well, my Bible says my heart is deceitfully wicked of all things. Who can know it? Trust my heart? Paul says I don't even trust myself. I don't even judge myself. My flesh is so tricky. And I said, Lord, you be the judge. You be the one that allows the trials to come and the trials to go. There was a time through all this that when you're in the fire, the fourth thing that we learn is that the Lord is there with you no matter what you're going through. Another good place for an amen. The Lord will never forsake you. Paul was forsaken. Even his closest friends, he says, Demas has forsaken me, loving the present world. But Timothy was still with him. But when Paul had to go to court, they all took off. He was there by himself. So I'm quoting 2 Timothy 4. He said, at my defense, no one stood with me. Uh, May it not be charged against them. He's talking about Timothy right now. Uh, But the Lord stood with me. And he strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. So, you know, is that that, um, a reference to the devil or a literal lion? I don't know. All I know is that when you are going through a trial, whether you realize it or not, the Lord is right there watching the whole thing. Daniel 3.25, the fourth person, Nebuchadnezzar looks in and goes, whoa, three I recognize, but that guy looks like the Son of God. And it was the Son of God. It was the Lord Jesus Christ um, in the fire with them. Could have delivered them, but he didn't. He chose not to. But he was with them. All right, number three. How Daniel and Revelation dovetail. Again, New Testament teaching with an Old Testament picture. Let me just give you an example to set this up. Turn to me to Revelation chapter 11. In Revelation 11, we have the Lord fulfilling a prophecy that comes from the book of Zechariah. It's actually one of our Calvary Chapel standards. It's not by power, it's not by might, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. It's in this section. And he's prophesying about two witnesses that are going to come in the last days. And he says in verse 3, I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees, the two lampstands, standing before the God of heaven of all the earth. Now, for extra credit, go back and read Zechariah 4, and you'll find that there's these two um, trees, and they have pipes on them. And the pipes go into the temple and continually fill the light in the temple, and the priest doesn't have to do the job because they have this unlimited resource of oil that flows into the temple. Now, the point here is oil is symbolic of the Spirit of God. 
And what's being said here is they have unlimited authority. In verse 5, if anybody wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anybody wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. And you go, oh, come on, Dwight. Fire coming out of their mouth and being destroyed. They have power to shut up heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. So no rain for how long? Well, their prophecy is 1,260 days. That's exactly three and a half years. The last verse of the Old Testament says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And here he is. This is Elijah. He did this before. What I want you to see is what he did in King Ahab's day when he said, Look, King Ahab, it's not going to rain until I say so. But it doesn't really tell us in the Old Testament how long that was, but we do in, in the book of James. Jesus made reference to it that it was three and a half years. My point with all this is we look at something and go, how can it not rain for three and a half years? Revelation 7 verse 1 says that the Lord set angels and held the four winds of heaven. No wind. What happens when you don't have wind? Well, then you don't have a weather cycle. And you don't have storms coming through. I was watching the radar this morning. About 6, there was a band that went right over to the Fox Valley because I wanted to know if it was going to rain for church or not this morning. So we have the technology to see that. What if there's no wind? Well, there's no wind, there's no cycle, and it doesn't rain. And so as hard as these things are to believe, it happened before, and the Lord allowed it to happen before, because what he says is going to happen again, we'll have more confidence that it's actually going to happen, exactly as he says. Now, um, and the other guy had the ability to turn water into blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Sounds like Moses to me. And I think they had a little staff meeting in, in the book of Matthew chapter 17 on the Mount of Transfiguration, where all of a sudden there's Moses and Elisha. And, you know, Peter doesn't know what to do, but that doesn't stop Peter from talking. And he says, oh, we need to build three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. I'm persuaded that's who this is here. But the point is, it's, it's a type because of what I'm going to say next. Here we have, in the book of Daniel, um, a picture and a dovetailing of the book of Daniel with the book of Revelation. And I like to say you will not understand the book of Revelation, and unless you understand the book of Daniel. And we're just getting beginning with this right here. I'm quoting McGee at this point. This event recorded here in this chapter are historical events. But we should also note that it's a prophetic picture of the Great Tribulation period. The fiery furnace represents the suffering that will occur during the Great Tribulation. This man, Nebuchadnezzar, represents the beast out of the sea, the Antichrist, the last great world ruler. The image of gold represents the abomination of desolation, which the Lord spoke of. These three Hebrew children represent the remnant, which will be miraculously preserved during the Great Tribulation period. And then, quite interestingly, Daniel is not mentioned in this chapter at all. 
he wasn't around. Apparently, he acted out only as a Supreme Court justice or he was out of town, but he is therefore a picture of the redeemed ones who will be removed before the great tribulation, and that is a reference to the rapture. Daniel can't be in the story because we're not in the tribulation. And Daniel is a picture of the church. He could have been there, but he would have been standing up, but he wasn't. He was gone. And it fits because the church will be gone during the great tribulation. The fourth man present in the furnace we see is the Lord Jesus was there with them. He will be with them also in the day of the great tribulation with those who are his as they go through the trials of that period. My friend, he is with you and me today when we go through our trials. He said, these things I have spoken unto you that you might have peace. In the world you're going to have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. He also said, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are protected. They're a picture, they're a type of the remnant of a third that's going to be saved. It's hard to me to talk about the other two-thirds. One of the guys at Ben's Prairie yesterday said he saw Schindler's List for the first time. And um, if you've never seen it before, um, it's it's something to behold. I've I've been to... um, Auschwitz and Birkenau. They're about three miles apart from each other, at least three times. And Birkenau's completely destroyed with maybe 20 wooden buildings still remaining. On the other hand, Auschwitz is completely intact. So it's a historical museum of the Holocaust. And it's one, one thing visiting Yad Vashem and having the history laid out in the pictures it's another thing walking through those gates that says work causes freedom. And um, it's just an overwhelming thing to comprehend. Now, I tell you that because only one-third is refined means two-thirds don't make it. In Revelation 12, when he tried to go after the one-third, remember the Lord interceded, and then it said Satan was cast down with great fury and he went to make war with the, the woman who is Israel. Two-thirds are clearly mentioned in the Old Testament that won't make it through this period of time. It'll be a terrible period of time. Turn to Revelation 13 as we begin to wind this up this morning. The first clue that we had was in verse 1. Here's an image. 60 cubics by 6 cubics wide. We got 6-6. In Revelation 13, which precedes... Chapter 12, Satan was in heaven until chapter 12, but now he's been cast to the earth, and the beast has been assassinated. And he miraculously comes back to life from a fatal head wound. And so, verse 3 says, I saw his head had been mortally wounded, and a deadly wound was healed. I remember, as every one of you do, what you were doing on November 22nd, was it 63? I was um, coming home for lunch, and when I came home for lunch, 
It was on the news. John Fitzgerald Kennedy is shot and is dead. Imagine after being pronounced dead, he comes back to life again. That's what causes all the world to wonder and marvel. And they followed the beast and they worshiped the beast who gave authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying, who's like the beast and who can make war against him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemy, and he was continued to have authority for 42 months. That's another way of saying three and a half years. So for the next three and a half years, what he commands the world to do is to make an image of himself. And we read in verse 14, that he does supernatural signs, that he even makes fire to come down from heaven, imitating Elijah. Verse 14, he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those that dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. And he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should speak, causes many that would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. If you didn't worship Nebuchadnezzar's statue, you were killed. And he caused all, both small and great and rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their foreheads or right hand, and that no one could buy or sell except the one that had the mark and the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here's wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, and the number is 666. Meant to be directly tied into Nebuchadnezzar's image of 60 cubics by 6. And we also find that, once again, there has not been a world empire since Rome. But the Bible says in Daniel 9, verse 27, that there will be a world leader who will make a covenant for one seven-year period of time. He breaks it right in the middle. Jesus calls that event the abomination of desolation, of worshiping the beast. And he tells the Jews what to do in Matthew 24. When that event's happen, run. And one-third of them make it to Petra. So as we begin to tie this up and dovetail Daniel with Revelation, I believe the Holy Spirit does it so that it gives us greater respect for the unbelievable, we're talking writers here, 40 writers over 1,500 years of time. They didn't all get together in some back room and put this all together. No, this is all divinely inspired by the Lord. And as we teach through the scriptures, we go, wow, that's sure, that sure is a coincidence, isn't it? One coincidence after another that line up exactly as the scripture said. If you don't worship, you die. And he will once again have the whole world worshiping him. A one world leader, just like Nebuchadnezzar. Let's go back and read our last verses from verse 26 to 30, where it tells us after this, a few moments earlier, Nebuchadnezzar was going to kill them Then Nebuchadnezzar, verse 26, went near the mouth of the burning, fiery furnace, and he said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. 
And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. And the, the satraps, the administrators, and the governors, and the king counselors gathered together. And they saw these men of whom the bodies of the fire had no power. And the hair of their head was not singed, nor was their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. And Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servant, who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nations, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego shall be cut in pieces, <laughs> and their houses shall be made an ash heap, because there is no other God who can deliver like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. When you do the right thing, and you're falsely accused or persecuted for righteousness' sake, the Lord says, rejoice. But what you don't realize is that by your witness, you might have a guy like Nebuchadnezzar around, a guy with a lot of authority, and he might, your witness, you might be witnessing to the next Billy Graham, and you might not even know it. Who knows? Here is the most, the next chapter is simply, the whole chapter is his personal testimony. And um, that I'll save that for next week. But here, because like um, Paul in prison um, and Silas, they were worshiping the Lord. Well, people were listening. They were checking it all out. What happened to the Philippian jailer, by the way? What must I do to be saved? That's what, that's what his question, after seeing these guys, how they responded, you know, one of the guys said the singing that uh, says there was an earthquake that broke open the chains and, and they were free to go. One guy in men's prayer, I think it was a poor Paul Mall joke, if I remember right, said, oh, well, I heard somebody saying that the, the beat, they were tapping their feet, and that's what caused the earthquake. But I don't think so. I think Paul was making that up all the time. <laughs> No, there was an earthquake, and the guy was ready to take himself out. He says, don't do it, don't do it, we're, we're still here. So the jailer takes him home and says, what must I do to be saved? He takes him to his house, cleans up his wounds, and he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. If you're not saved this morning, and you have doubts about this book, I challenge you to um, be a Berean. And see the intensity and how perfectly intertwined, how great is God's wisdom. Especially, my friends, in the times in which we live, because there's a lot of people scratching their head, kind of wondering what's going on. And the church is supposed to be the one that has the answers. Amen? So, wherever we're at this morning, he's able to... Save them to the uttermost. My friends, you and I are living in a world today in which we are going to have trouble. Some of God's children do get into the fiery furnace, but he's able to keep them even there, and he's able to bring them out of it. 
We simply need to trust the Lord and not compromise on his word like they did. Amen and amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. Oh, Lord, we fall so, so short of the, the boldness and their unwillingness to compromise. And we might be asking for trouble for praying for it, but Lord, help us be more like Daniel. And help us be more like these three young men who will say, God's word says this, and so that's the end of the issue, and this is where I stand. So we thank you for your word, and we stand amazed, Lord, how you connect um, Revelation and Daniel together. Go before us this day, in Jesus' name I pray, amen.